Well, good morning, everybody. I don't know if you can hear me out there in the hallways or not, but we have a lot of material to get through. So it is 9.30 on the button, and we are going to begin. Um, there's a small chance that we may not get through everything in this lesson this morning because there's a lot to get through. So if we chop it off maybe five, six minutes early, that's because we had 20 or 30 minutes left and I wasn't sure we could get through it. But let's go ahead and pray. We'll jump into our, our lesson for this morning. Father, thank you for this morning where we can gather together with your people. Thank you for the chance to study your word and to uh, seek to understand your plan, your will for the future. Lord, I pray that this study would be clarifying for all of us, that it would not be confusing. And I pray that it would give us hope, that it would encourage us, that it would increase our eagerness to see you face to face and to see your glory displayed here in this earth. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we are going to continue our, our um, section on eschatology this morning, and I've been tasked with covering the return of Christ, and we're going to, to begin talking about, well, I'm not sure if we'll get through it all, but begin talking about the millennial kingdom. So the return of Christ and the millennial kingdom. Um, the coming of Christ is really something that is hard to overvalue in Scripture. In fact, you could really look at the whole Bible and center it around what it has to do with Jesus coming. You could summarize the Old Testament as he is coming. You could summarize the Gospels, the message of the Gospels being he's here. And then in Acts and the Epistles, the emphasis falls on this note, that he's coming again. So that's not original to me, but I thought that's a great way to sort of relate all of Scripture to this central focus of the coming of Jesus into the world. So he is coming, he's here, he's coming again. And what is oftentimes hard to distinguish in the Old Testament, but it becomes more clear in the New Testament, is that there's two comings of Christ. I don't know if you guys have ever driven out to Colorado on I-70. I heard um, one theologian describe it this way, that when we read about the coming of Christ in the Old Testament, it's kind of like when you see those two mountain peaks on the front range, you know, when you're driving out towards Denver, and it looks like those mountains are right next to each other. But then as you get closer and you get closer, you realize one of those is just the front range and the other is actually like, you know, several miles beyond it. And there's this big, all these gaps in between and valleys and towns and ski lifts and all this stuff that you couldn't see from far away. It wasn't until you got up close, you realized there was a gap between them. When you read the Old Testament and you look at all the promises about the Messiah, it's kind of like that. Oftentimes we'll find teaching about the first coming of Jesus stacked right next to teaching about the second coming of Jesus, and it can be hard to sort of differentiate between them. But that's something that as we come to the New Testament, it becomes more clear that Jesus would come the first time, uh, he would be born as a baby, and he would come as a suffering servant. He came to die. He came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And that surprised many of the Jewish believers of the day because they knew all the promises about the second coming, and they thought Jesus was supposed to be doing all that. And he said, well, that, that's not why I'm here right now. Uh, but he is going to come a second time. And when he comes the second time, it will not be as a suffering servant. It won't be in humility. It won't be uh, to die, to be rejected and humiliated. He will come in glory to conquer and to establish his kingdom. So the coming of Christ is really central to the whole storyline of the Bible, his first and his second coming. In terms of the Old Testament, what does the Old Testament say about the second coming of Jesus, because that's what we're going to focus on this morning, is the return of Christ, his second coming. Um, in Daniel chapter 7, we have one of the most clear prophecies about this. Daniel sees a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, behold, 
With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we have this very clear reference to someone coming who's like a son of man. This is a human. It's a man. But there's great glory and dominion and a kingdom given to him. Um, So he's distinguished from the ancient of days. He's not God the Father, but as we come to learn later, this Son of Man is divine. So the Son of Man, we learn later, is also the Son of God. This is talking about Jesus. So there's a very clear reference here. Also in Zechariah 9.14, when it talks about the return of the Messiah to Mount Zion, it says, the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Verse 16 tells us, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine in his land. So the appearance of the Lord, the the coming of one like the Son of Man, is for the establishment of a kingdom, it's for glory and dominion, but it also means salvation for God's people. So it's something that God's people are to look forward to with hope, with expectation. We see this teaching on the second coming even more explicitly in the New Testament, especially in the teaching of Jesus. He tells, um, it tells us in Matthew 16, 27, that the Son of Man, there's this echo of the language of Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So the second coming marks a day of judgment. In Acts chapter 1 verse 11, after the resurrection of Jesus, as he's gathered uh, with his disciples, he ascends back into heaven. They watch him go up into the sky And then an angel appears as these guys are all standing with their mouths hanging open, sort of gawking, as you and I probably would be as well. And the angel has to sort of wake them back up and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So just like he ascended into heaven, we're told Jesus is going to come back. Um, We can also mention John 14 where Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Um, Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. First Thessalonians tells us about the Lord descending from heaven with a shout. Uh, that the Lord himself will reappear. So we have uh, a lot of explicit um, teaching in the New Testament about the return of Christ, the second coming of Jesus. A couple essential truths regarding the return of Christ. Number one, the return of Christ will be personal, visible, and physical. Each one of those words is important. That the return of Christ will be personal, visible, and physical. Because some people say the return of Christ won't be personal. It's just sort of the spirit of Jesus that is sort, sort of increases on the earth. That we are the hands and feet of Jesus. And somehow the return of Christ has to do with sort of his spirit living on in us. But that's not a personal return. So we would reject that. Some people say that it won't be visible. Um, others would claim that it's not physical. But we know that all of these aspects of the return of Christ are essential. Acts 111. This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. It's the personal return of Christ. Um, it is physical. Um, 
as we see in, oops, skipped ahead there. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Uh, Revelation 1 tells us everyone's going to see it. It says, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So we know the return of Christ is personal, it is visible, and it is physical. Each one of those points are important. Secondly, no one knows when he is arriving. Matthew 24, verse 36, makes this very clear. Um, So don't listen to false predictions that violate the word of God. Um, There's always these kind of fringe teachers and preachers and groups who claim that they know when Jesus is going to come back. And they'll make predictions, they'll set dates, and they'll point to all these different current events, and they'll try to do this weird interpretive kind of game with scripture where they turn everything into numbers and add them up and say, this tells us when Jesus is coming back. But all of that is contrary to what scripture teaches us. Matthew 24, 36 says, concerning that day and hour, this is referring to the the coming of the Son of Man, says, no one knows. So when anyone says they know when Jesus is coming back, they're disagreeing with Jesus himself. So you have to pick who you're going to trust. Jesus or somebody else, and we want to go with Christ. Um, Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus says that, speaking here in his incarnation, in his humanity, that he doesn't even have access to that information. He has a right to it as God, but in his humility, he has willingly limited himself to, to everything that rightfully belongs to him including the expression of certain aspects of his divine power and even certain aspects of divine knowledge. Jesus says, listen, this is something that the Father knows. So don't listen to false predictions that violate the word of God. No one knows when Jesus is arriving. The third point about the return of Christ, and this is going to sort of lead us off into the rest of our lesson this morning, is that the return of Christ, his coming, is central to the fulfillment of God's plans. The coming of Jesus is essential to the fulfillment of God's plans, and especially God's plans for the kingdom. You could put it this way, Jesus isn't coming back just to hang out. He's not coming back just to say hi and sort of, you know, see what's going on. No, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back to do stuff. Jesus is returning so that he can rule, so that he may reign. Matthew 25, 31 tells us, when the Son of Man comes, in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus isn't coming back to say hi or to hang out. He's coming back to do stuff. He's coming back to reign. And when Jesus sits on his glorious throne, this is key to all of these different promises and purposes of God that we find in Scripture. So we need to understand the importance of Jesus' coming to God's plans. So let's talk a little bit about the second coming and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a central biblical theme. I agree with with several theologians, scholars, who have argued that if you want to read the whole Bible and find one thread that ties it all together, from Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, all the way to to Revelation, this idea of kingdom is really something that holds the whole thing together. It's sort of the explanatory reason. It's the purpose and the direction everything is going. And so we have to understand the relationship of the return of Jesus 
to this idea of the kingdom of God. Uh, we see this starting in Genesis where you have Adam created as sort of a prototypical king. He's someone who represents God as being made in the image of God, and he's given this mandate to exercise dominion over the created realm. This is all kingly language. These are kingly responsibilities. Um, Adam has a job to do as God's representative to express his rule, his authority, his reign over the earth. Uh, Obviously, we know Adam failed. He didn't do that. And so the rest of the story is about God bringing this original kingdom purpose uh, back together. And that's what we find at the end of Revelation is a kingdom established. And the second Adam, Jesus, reigning as the first Adam should have. Um, He's not only the second Adam, he's also the son of David. David was the king of Israel, another prototypical kingdom um, that never fully lived up to what it was supposed to be. Israel never accomplished uh, what they could have and should have. And so Jesus comes as the son of David to be the better king that Israel never quite had. And so we have all these themes coming together in Revelation. So this theme of the kingdom is a theme that permeates Old Testament history and prophecy. We see this prototypical kingdom in the garden, and then later we find this kingdom in terms of Israel in the Old Testament. It's a kingdom that's ultimately lost. It's a kingdom that fails. We have all this prophecy in the Old Testament about a coming king, about a Messiah, about the son of David, and all their hopes in this Messiah were for the restoration of this kingdom so that God's plan would become what it was always meant to be. That's this theme all throughout the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, when John the Baptist shows up, and then Jesus after him, what marks their preaching is they're preaching about the kingdom. They're talking about the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. So this kingdom becomes a theme in their preaching ministries. And then obviously it becomes a key feature of biblical eschatology. Um, We see this in 1 Corinthians 15. In speaking about the return of Christ, Paul says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So the coming of Jesus has to do with bringing all of these kingdom promises and purposes to bear. And then we come to Revelation chapter 20, and I'm going to invite you to turn there. And we're moving really fast, which is good, because this is where I wanted to get this morning. In Revelation chapter 20, we have this extended teaching about a future kingdom that coincides with the return of Christ. And this is a key feature of biblical eschatology. What is the future kingdom that is coming? Well, before we even start interpreting a passage like this, um, I've sort of talked about kingdom and described it for you, but how do we define kingdom? If this is really the theme of the whole Bible, what is the kingdom of God? Um, This is a central biblical theme, but it is rarely defined, and it is rarely agreed upon. If you talk to 10 different pastors, 10 different scholars, 10 different professors at some seminary, you'll probably get 18 different answers about what the kingdom actually is. So people are all over the map on this, but I think we can sum it all down just by looking at what the words themselves mean. We have the Hebrew word for kingdom, malkuth, and the Greek word, basileia, and these are often translated in English in different ways. These words are translated um, as royalty or royal power, translated as reign or as kingdom. There's sort of this cluster of words that we use to translate these biblical words. And we can reduce this concept down to three essential elements. And this comes from uh, Michael Vlock and his uh, large book. It's called A Biblical Theology of the Kingdom um, that traces this theme from Genesis to Revelation. 
And he reduces this concept of kingdom down to three essential elements. And the first is you have to have a ruler. You have to have a ruler. The concept of kingdom includes one who has rightful and adequate authority and power. Um, You have to have somebody that deserves to rule over the kingdom. It's, It's his by right. He's not a usurper. He's not someone that has taken something that doesn't belong to him. This ruler must have rightful claim to the throne, and he must have adequate authority and power. Uh, He cannot be weak. He must be someone with the power to rule and reign and to hold everything together. So the ruler is essential, and we know that that's Jesus Christ. And that's why when he comes, he's telling everyone that the kingdom has drawn near. How can Jesus say that the kingdom has drawn near? Well, because the king is there. He's speaking to them. And so in Christ, there's, these people are coming into contact with the kingdom of God because the ruler himself is there, the one who has the right to the throne, who has adequate authority and power to rule and to reign. So you have to have a ruler, but if all you have is a ruler, you don't quite have the fullness of God's kingdom. Secondly, you have to have a realm. You have to have a realm of subjects to be ruled. Um, I had several illustrations of this that I'm probably not going to go into. You guys know what, what I'm talking about. This makes sense to you. Um, if there's a king who's out walking on the sidewalk, he walks into our church, says, I'm the king of England. You might say, okay, that's cool, but we're not citizens of England, so you don't really have any authority here. Your kingdom is not really here. Um, in order for there to be a kingdom, you not only need the ruler, you also need the realm of subjects that are being ruled. And that even includes a place. It's geographical, it's political, and there's people, there's subjects. So the idea of kingdom includes a realm. You have a ruler, you have a realm. And then there's a third aspect. And this one is the one that I think often gets overlooked in a lot of modern discussions of the kingdom. And that's the idea of rulership. The king, the one who has the right to rule and the power to rule, has to be present in this realm, and there must be subjects who are being ruled, But then he actually has to do the ruling. There has to be an exercise of kingship, an exercise of authority. When you have all three of these present, when you have a ruler and you have a proper realm and you have that ruler exercising his power, enforcing his will, reigning over his realm and those subjects in the realm, then you have the kingdom, this full-blown concept of the kingdom of God. So those are important, those three concepts, and and that'll make sense later. So as we're defining kingdom, you might say, okay, so it's still not clear to me. Isn't isn't this sort of always true? Well, yes, in a general sense, this is an eternal reality. Listen to Psalm 99.1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. In a general sense, God is the ruler of his created universe, and we are the people, the subjects in his realm, and he is at every moment exercising his sovereign power to hold everything together and to ordain all things that come to pass. So in that sense, God has always ruled. His sovereign rulership has always been active. We're not deists who say God's hands are just sort of off, and he's kind of spun everything loose, and now he's just watching from a distance. No, God's on his throne. He's in charge. He's exercising his sovereign power. So in a general sense, we can talk about God as king. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He sits on his throne. We can use all of this kingdom language to describe everything and everything that has always been, and it will always be that way. God will never not be God. He'll never not be on his throne. We'll never not be under his rule in that sense. 
But that's a very general sense. In a specific sense, I want to talk about the kingdom of God. Because there's all these promises in the Old Testament and the New Testament that indicate that there is something coming that we're not yet experiencing. That there's a future reality um, in terms of the kingdom of God that we're supposed to be looking for. Something that is coming. Something that's going to be established. And so it's that specific sense of the kingdom of God um, that we would say is an already not yet reality. That's sort of a theological construct for interpreting certain things in Scripture. This is a little bit technical. If you can just follow me, there's an already not yet sense in which the kingdom of God is present. Think about this. It's already present in the sense that Jesus is the risen king. We know he's the Messiah. He's the second Adam. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. And he has been crucified, but he's risen from the dead. And he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's seated there on the throne. And we are his subjects. Uh, We are citizens of the kingdom of God, right? We're supposed to eagerly await this coming reality because this isn't our our, our ultimate home. Um, We're citizens of, of a future coming kingdom. But this kingdom is not yet in the sense that Jesus isn't yet fully exercising that rulership. And here's what I mean by that. There are still enemies of Christ that are on the loose. Um, There are still uh, nations and people and spiritual powers that have not yet been brought, to use the language of the Psalms, under his feet. So there's a future not yet aspect to this kingdom. Uh, Satan (coughs) is described as being the god of this world, as the prince of the power of the air. Uh, We know that the kingdom of darkness still exists and wields great sway and power in our world today. So in that sense, the kingdom of God is not yet. But in another sense, it is already present because we have the first two elements. We have the ruler, we have the realm, but the full exercise of Christ's power and authority is not yet in place. Does that make sense? That the kingdom in this specific sense, in the sense that it's promised in the Old Testament and promised in the New Testament, is an already not yet reality. Uh, In the future, this kingdom will be established as a spiritual, physical, political reality. And Jesus will reign here on the earth as the second Adam, the son of David, and the son of God. So the kingdom, this kingdom, this future kingdom, is spoken of often in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of the key passages is Revelation chapter 20, and you should already be there. Let's talk about the relationship between Christ's return in this future kingdom. Revelation 20, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. There's multiple references to this coming kingdom. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Mark that little phrase, a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ For a thousand years. There's that phrase once again. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him, there's kingdom language, for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And we'll stop there. Revelation chapter 20 speaks of a thousand-year kingdom. It's a thousand-year kingdom where Jesus reigns on the earth along with resurrected saints. If we would have read chapter 19, chapter 19 describes this glorious, powerful return of Christ. Uh, It's the Jesus who comes seated on a white horse in splendor and glory and power, um, and his return is triumphant. Um, and comprehensive in chapter 19. And then following that in chapter 20, we have this kingdom described. So understanding Revelation 19 and 20, um, there's, there's basically three main camps, three different ways in which people understand this. Um, this thousand-year period that's referred to several times here in this text is often referred to as the millennial kingdom. Millennium just means a thousand. So it's this thousand-year kingdom where Jesus reigns along with the resurrected saints, over the earth. And so people ask a question, so when is this kingdom? What is this kingdom like? And what's the relationship of this thousand-year kingdom to the return of Christ? How does that all fit together? And there's basically three views. There is the amillennial view, the postmillennial view, and the premillennial view. I'm going to try to give you a brief overview of these this morning and see how far we get. First would be, we'll just talk about the amillennial view. This little ah prefix, that A word, basically means it's a negative uh, particle. It means not or or non or no. So no millennium. And that's not totally accurate, um, but but it is is what this view is known as. And the amillennial view uh, would hold that there is a kingdom. So it's not like they don't believe there's a kingdom. They do. But they believe this millennial kingdom described in Revelation 20 is a spiritual reality. It's something that takes place in some senses either in heaven above or in the church below right now. They would say that this kingdom is not a future reality. It's a present reality. It's a present reality. So the way we could map it out, the amillennial view would be that there is the church age in which we are right now. And then at the end of the church age, you will have the return of Christ. And then following the return of Christ, we have the eternal state. Stephen talked about that um, a few weeks ago. This eternal state, which is everything's pretty much done. All of God's enemies are dealt with. There's been resurrection. Um, and, and everything goes on off into the sunset um, as we enjoy being with Christ forever in a renewed creation. That's the eternal state. So the amillennial sort of scheme is very simple. You have the church age, and then you have the return of Christ, and everything's sort of happening all at once. And then you have the eternal state. So they believe that this millennial kingdom described in Revelation 20, this passage we just read, describes a present reality. So they don't see a future kingdom age that is distinct in any way from the church age today or the eternal state to come. Um, And a key sort of interpretive feature of this system is that they would see the church as the replacement of Israel or as 
the true Israel or the new Israel. And that's why they are able to sort of spiritually and somewhat allegorically at times interpret many of the promises and prophecies that have to do with the future kingdom. They sort of take those and spiritually try to apply them to the church today. So that's very short, very brief, but that's the amillennial view. So when they read Revelation 20, they don't see this thousand-year kingdom as being a future thing that happens on the earth. They see it as being a present reality. So that's the amillennial view. A couple problems with that view is that just in terms of the way they interpret Scripture, it depends on um, an allegorical or spiritual interpretation of many passages in the Old and New Testament. Uh, we want to have a, an approach to Scripture that takes things at sort of a straightforward meaning um, as much as possible. We want to take words at face value and understand what the authors meant and not try to find sort of a, a hidden meaning or a secret meaning we want to interpret things as literally as possible, as often as possible. And yes, there's metaphors, and yes, there's, there's um, you know, different genres of Scripture that are somewhat different. But even these are to be interpreted as having a literal meaning. The metaphor means something. What does it mean? So we want to always find that out. And this view um, has to, and I'll show you this a little bit in the future, has to sort of, um, I think, really bend certain passages of Scripture in order to make them fit. Um, I also think, secondly, a problem with this view is that they wrongly read Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 as referring to the same event from two different perspectives. So if you read Revelation 19, um, there's a description of the return of Christ and this great battle and this final victory. And then in Revelation 20, there's another great battle and another victory. And the amillennial view says that this millennial kingdom doesn't come after the return of Christ. This is something that already took place. And so they have to read Revelation 19 and 20 as like looking at one event from two different camera angles. It's called recapitulation. It's telling the same story, but looking at it from a different angle. And I think that's the wrong way to read these two chapters. If you read through them, I think they are chronological. I believe they are sequential. They're describing two different events, and it's linear. It's things happening in succession. It's not retelling the same story and recapping it. Um, in order to read Revelation 20 as not being a future reality but a present reality, they have to assert that the saints are now reigning with Christ already. And, and as I'll show you later, I don't think that really fits. I think when it says that these saints came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, it's hard to say that that's describing a present reality. I think that's a future reality. And finally, they wrongly assert that there's a distinction between the first and second resurrection. And I'll show you that. In, in Revelation 20, remember it says that the faithful believers, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then it says in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And they say that the first resurrection is referring to salvation, that they spiritually came alive, they got saved. And the second resurrection is referring to a physical resurrection, you know, bodies that are raised back to life. And I think that's an arbitrary distinction. We need to be consistent with how we interpret those. So those are some weaknesses with the amillennial view. Um, let's survey and just briefly overview the postmillennial view. The word post, as you can probably guess, means after. And this is a view that says Jesus comes after this millennial kingdom that's described in Revelation 20. So they would see that there's the church age, which we're in today, and that the church age gradually gives way to this period, this golden era of the kingdom, that the world will be gradually Christianized. 
that all the nations will be brought into submission to Christ through the faithful labors of the church. So they believe that the Great Commission is going to be so successful that the world will become dominated by the gospel and it will bring about this kingdom era in which everything is being ruled and reigned over by Christ. And then at the end of this golden era, Jesus is going to return to raise the dead and judge humanity. So it's called the post-millennial view because they believe this kingdom referred to in Revelation 20, this thousand-year era, refers to something that's going to happen here on the earth, but it comes before Jesus returns, not after. That's the key distinction here. So they, I think, rightly understand the kingdom as being physical in nature, something that takes place uh, as a political, physical, geographical reality here in this world. Um, But they believe that this happens before Jesus comes back, not after. A few problems with this view. Um, While they rightly get sort of the nature of the kingdom in certain ways, uh, they wrongly expect this to happen without Jesus showing up. And I think that as we study scripture, we, we clearly can see that, that there's so many things in this world that simply can't happen until Jesus comes back. Uh, one of the reasons Jesus performed so many miracles in his ministry was to show people the nature of the kingdom of God. Uh, when Jesus was accused of doing miracles by the power of Satan, he says, well, if, if Satan casts out Satan by the power of Satan, his house isn't going to stand. That doesn't work. A house divided doesn't work says, but if I cast out demons with the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The reason Jesus did these miracles was to show the world that when the king shows up and when he does what only he can do, everything changes. It is his power that brings life out of death, that causes the blind to see, the lame to walk, and that triumphs over spiritual darkness. That's only possible when the Messiah is present. I think that's why Jesus did all those things during his ministry. Secondly, I think that those who hold to this view wrongly expect things to gradually get better and better and better, rather than getting gradually worse. And neither scripture or church history seem to support the view that everything is going to get gradually better, better, and better. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters, get this, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We're told to expect things to get worse, not better. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 12, that because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus doesn't give us a picture of everyone believing in the end, but rather many people turning away and that only a few will remain faithful. So this doesn't seem to fit. This idea of the world getting better, 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 and us bringing about the kingdom through our evangelistic efforts. Um, I think it's better to anticipate that that all of these amazing kingdom promises about the earth being radically changed and society radically changed— That's going to require something like Jesus actually showing up to make those things happen. Um, And then a last struggle, and this is a struggle for both the amillennial view and the postmillennial view. Um, Both of these views struggle to explain the binding of Satan or the reigning of the saints as a present reality. If you remember reading through this passage in Revelation 20, it's described for us that Satan is seized by an angel, bound with a chain, thrown into a pit, The pit is sealed, and he's not allowed to deceive the nations. It's very, very difficult to describe our current world fitting that picture. 
Um, and we don't have, I think, enough time to go all the way into it today, um, but we will next time. So I'm going to chop this lesson in half because we're halfway through. Um, but both the post-millennial view and the amillennial view, because they see Revelation 20 as a reality that's happening now, it's hard for them to explain the saints being resurrected and reigning. It's hard for them to explain Satan being bound in any sort of meaningful way. There's a third view, and if you haven't figured it out yet, this is the view that I hold to. This is the view that um, our church has sort of taken this position in our statement of faith, and it's the premillennial view. The premillennial view is called pre-mill or premillennial because we believe Jesus will return pre or before the establishment of the kingdom. So the premillennial view has the church age, which we're in now, which is followed by the return of Jesus Christ. And when Christ returns, we believe he will establish his kingdom in power. That's what's being described here in Revelation 20 is a future physical kingdom here on the earth. And then at the end of this period, this kingdom period, we believe there will be a final judgment and there will be the eternal state where, where things are, the whole earth, the whole creation is remade and renewed. So this is called pre-mill because we believe Jesus will return before the kingdom is established in its completeness. And this view holds that the kingdom is established by Jesus. Um, it's not something that we accomplish. And this recognizes that the kingdom is intermediate in nature. So, so the difference between these three views is not just a timing issue. The amillennial view um, and the postmillennial view, they actually think the kingdom is a little bit different in its nature. And the premillennial view holds that the kingdom is a transitional period. It's not like life right now. It's different. It's different because Jesus is here. It's different because Satan is bound. I mean, imagine that. If Satan were allowed to have zero influence in the world, imagine how that might change things. Um, imagine if there was resurrection um, taking place and you had glorified saints living on the earth. I mean, imagine if if many of Jesus' enemies have already been defeated at this great battle that we see in Revelation 19, um, imagine how different that would be. Uh, and the whole creation is going to respond to it. That's why Isaiah uh, says that in this, in this future coming kingdom, when the Messiah comes back, that the lion will lie down with the lamb and that kids can play with cobras, that even the hostility and the violence of the created world is going to shift and change during this kingdom. But we recognize that this kingdom... While it's very different than the world we live in today, it is not fully like the eternal state. There's still certain things that haven't happened. Uh, there's still death in the world. Even though it's rare and uncommon, it still exists. There's still sin. Even though this sin is not allowed to throw off the reign and the rule of Christ, it still exists in the hearts of man. Um, and Satan is going to latch onto that and at the end try to bring about one final rebellion at the end of this kingdom. So we recognize that this kingdom is intermediate in nature. It's different than the church age. Very, very different. But it's not yet perfect. It's not yet the eternal state. There's still certain things that have yet to happen. So that's the pre-millennial view. And I'm going to stop now. Um, and next time we, we get back into this, I'm going to share with you five reasons for this pre-millennial view. And this, is, this will be a chance to look at Scripture and sort of dive into this, dig into this. And just in case some of you aren't here, I'm going to skip ahead and show you these five reasons. There we go. I'll just summarize this and then we'll close. Number one, I think that the premillennial pre view best captures the intermediate nature of this kingdom. 
Secondly, I think the pre-mill view rightly explains the chronology of Revelation 19 and 20. I think it's the best interpretation of these two chapters together. I think the pre-mill view makes the best explanation for the binding of Satan as a future reality, not a present reality. I think the pre-mill view rightly explains the two resurrections we find in Revelation 20. And I think the pre-mill view best allows for the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Um, There are many prophecies that were fulfilled literally in Jesus' first coming. We also expect that there's many more prophecies that will likewise be fulfilled literally at Jesus' second coming. We don't think he's going to change his approach. Uh, So those are five reasons why we hold to the pre-mill view, and I will give you fuller explanation for that next time. But we are out of time. So as a reminder, um, we're going to be doing some question and answer Um, in several weeks. So if you have questions about the return of Christ or about the millennial kingdom, be sure to write those down. If you can give those to us ahead of time, that's super helpful. Or we can always obviously share those uh, in class. But we invite you to come back um, as we continue this series in the weeks to come. Thanks.